Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. What's it like for you watching games of your son coaching? Agonizing. It's a family affair on Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast. You know, I didn't know there was actual work here. <laughs> Recent guests include Rich Eisen, John Harbaugh, Judge Judy, and John Madden. I thought one of the greatest jobs in coaching in the NFL was Jim's first year with the 49ers. Exclusively on Podcast One Sportsnet. Get episodes every Tuesday on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Great time to be a Wolverine. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Ware, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. The NCAA tournament is now in the rearview mirror, and my standard guest, because I love talking with him, to go through how that affects the NBA draft, which is the focus area of this on Real GM Radio, is friend of the show, Sam Vicini. He is senior writer at the Athletics College Basketball site, The Fieldhouse, and great NBA draft guy as well. You know, those things all, always run together pretty much. And we go through a lot of different topics, who who increased their stock, who decreased it, a couple of different thoughts on the tournament from me as somebody who doesn't watch as much college basketball. The really interesting situation of the player who declined to go to Syracuse instead is jumping to the G League. We talked about that towards the end. And some of the other decisions that, that people made. This podcast is sponsored by Hims. You can get amazing solutions for being proactive, especially uh, for hair care for potential baldness. And for Hims.com slash real you can get a trial month for just five bucks and then our friends at true car you can check out true car to get a new car or a used car and this podcast runs about an hour 15 lots of different topics lots of different areas as those of you who've listened to this sam and i move very quickly so i hope you enjoy it thank you so much for coming on what's going on danny it's uh we're in that nice period right now where my life isn't the most insane thing in the world it's like a two-week period really where uh college basketball is over Really, all that I have to focus on is like kind of the NBA draft, but it like it doesn't really matter that these kids are like staying and going. I can kind of focus on some of the young guys doing things in the NBA, but it, it's just a nice little buffer period. And the best part of that buffer period is that it occurs during my birthday weeks. My birthday is April 16th, so I get to hang out and I get to enjoy this uh, nice little two-week stretch before the NBA playoffs start before draft season kicks into full gear and I have to really start worrying about like, oh, who, who do I need to go see work out? Who, I need to, who do I need to do this with? It's just, this is a beautiful set of weeks here. So this is pretty funny because my birthday is April 19th, which means for my job, that means it's right in the middle of the playoffs. Yeah, you're, so. you're like, you, you just hit that like, 
terrible spot. But like, you know what? No, it's, but I it's enjoy also, it. Yeah. yeah, but it's also the Warriors too. And the Warriors, you don't have to worry about losing in the first round, well, even without yeah, so, Steph Curry. Yeah, it'll be it'll be basically probably doing Twitter NBA show or covering a playoff game in person. I am never ever going to complain about that. So yeah, it'll be nice. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, it'll it'll be different with those two places. And it's a good thing that we got the podcast we did before the NCAA tournament out because they're really like a lot of those guys were out so quickly that it would have been really outdated if we had waited even like a day longer to do it yeah I'm, I'm glad that we got a chance to talk about the guys that we needed to talk about because otherwise people wouldn't have known what to watch uh, and they, they would have only uh, gotten a chance to see one game and I'm glad we were able to kind of make sure that people knew hey this is a like one game chance here you know Michael Porter watch Michael Porter for that one game watch Mo Bamba for that one game and go from there yeah and you know you never know if refs are going to foul a guy out on semi-verticality calls and then not be not be there in overtime lose so we don't get to see him in a second round which for selfish reasons you know obviously sucks so so you you watch nba regularly where there's obviously this massive conversation about officiating in the nba right now right Mm mm-hmm how much worse is college basketball officiating than NBA officiating? So much worse. It, it's literally like the difference between college basketball players and NBA players. I was in thinking terms it's of like talent. the difference between college players and high school players. Like I It's think, so bad. And in college, the other weird thing, and this might just be my sample size has dropped so much in recent years, but even going back to when I, when I watched a ton of college basketball, was maybe the analogy to high school and college players isn't apt because you didn't really see the I was like, oh man, this person did a really, really good job. Though, especially as a lot of the time I watched college was as a partisan, you even if it was in your favor, you wouldn't necessarily notice that. You would only ever notice it if it was against you. Yeah, there's that too. But like now that I cover the games and I'm just sitting here and I don't really care about who wins. And I'm just yelling at the screen constantly. Like, I'm just like, why are you doing this? Why are you calling this foul? Why are there charges? Why did, why does no college official know the difference between a block and a charge? It's, there's no consistency. It's the, it's impossible for any player with any sort of physical advantage to actually take advantage of that physical advantage because college referees are just like, Oh, this guy's stronger. So it must have been a foul. Like, they just have no idea. It's the most infuriating thing in the world. Yeah, for those of us who get frustrated in the NBA at what I call J.J. Barea fouls, which is when basically a small guy just flops because he knows that the big guy is stronger, that is like... Every foul in college. Something like 300% more prevalent in college basketball might even be more than that. And it's because, because... one of the basic lines for officiating is whether you can evaluate whether you make the call based on the like basically the effects of the contact or whether you make the call on the underlying forces behind it. And so like basically if you see a guy flying somewhere, oh well that a that's obviously a foul on the other guy. Or is it like, hey, was was that player who's flying in position? Were they maybe exaggerating the contact, all that kind of stuff? And NBA refs get baited because pro players are so good at making those calls harder. Right. Harden, Harden is incredible at this. But in college, they just they're just not good at making them anyway. They just suck. Yeah. <laughs> 
and, and it does and it does make it in certain situations harder harder to evaluate and i was thinking about this a little bit in terms of somebody like deandre aden who was knocked yeah. out in the first round disappointing factors and so it, it kind of affects a player like him on both ends of the floor where yeah. offensively it, it, the inconsistency he's so physically dominant sometimes he can get some offensive calls that aren't really fair and then defensively you just have to play it differently because of the way that certain things are going to be officiated not that that is the reason Aiton was disappointing at moments this year defensively it just is a factor worth considering at least a little bit yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely true. I, like people have been complaining about DeAndre Ayton's defense all year. I think there's like a pretty decent chance, and I haven't asked Sean about this, but like I think there's a decent chance that Sean Miller told him, hey, we need you on the floor. I mean, without saying so much, referees don't know what they're doing. Don't take as many chances protecting the rim as your physical tools make you capable of because we just need you out on the floor. The same thing happened last year. Michigan State with some of their guys, like Tom Izzo literally said, hey, we have six guys right now. We can't get you in foul trouble. You can't afford to be in foul trouble. So don't take chances. And that's kind of the constraint that college basketball is under whenever uh, you only have five fouls before you foul out. Yeah, and it is the same number of fouls relative to the minutes played. I mean, the five to the six scales, 40 and 48. But the nature of fouls themselves and the way they can accumulate, to me, it feels like they run a lot faster in college sometimes. And especially with big guys. And also, and we saw Also, this- coaches being stupid and like just auto-sitting guys with two fouls in the first half. Including in the national championship game? Yes. Oh, God. I love John Beeline. John Beeline is an incredible basketball coach who gets guys from point A to point B of their development, maybe better than any coach in the country, but he needs to do something about that. Like he needs to get past whatever that mental block is in his head to start playing guys with two fouls in the first half because sitting Abdur Rahman and sitting uh, who, who else? Uh, Xavier Simpson just like totally changed the complexion of that game. Yeah. And I remember when coach Budenholzer did this, I can't remember if it was with, I think it was with Millsap. It might've been with Horford at a separate occasion and got the fifth foul, pulled them with, I think it was like seven or eight minutes left in the fourth quarter and then brought them back with two minutes to go when the game was basically already out of hand. And as a value proposition, the easiest way, and that Villanova game was a good example of this, to think about it is you need them for these minutes because if you save them, the minutes that they play in the second half just might not matter. Right, right. I mean, I guess that like some people think there's a difference between playing at the end of the game versus playing in the seven to four minute range, but... I don't really know that there is the more I think about it. Like, I don't know that you're gaining some tangible advantage by saving your guy for the end of the game, saving your guy's fouls for the final minute, just because, you know, does it matter if you lose the game from the seven to four minute mark or does it matter if you lose the game from the four to the zero minute mark? I don't think it does. You lose anyway. Well, and there's upside on one side and not on the other, because if the player doesn't commit the foul and you play them early, then you get those minutes. And if the player to, and if the player committed the foul, they were going to commit the foul either way. Absolutely. You get into those sort of circumstances, and it it can be incredibly frustrating. And I understand why you want to have your best players on the floor at the end in case the game is close. But in a lot of these circumstances, you need that player for the game to be close at the end. And I don't know if that's a good transition into some of these kind of not one and done in terms of just their freshman year, but one and done players. What I think the, the place to start with this is actually did that 
one game and elimination affect really the stock of any of these guys. So DeAndre Ayton's one, Porter is one, actually both Porters fit into that. Any, uh, Trey Young, where did they win their first game? No, they uh, Oklahoma lost. Oklahoma yeah, lost, lost Rhode Island, that's right. So Mo Bamba, all those, did any of them, did that really hurt their stock or was it just kind of a smaller amount of time to get to see them for NBA people? It's just a smaller amount of time. I don't really think that any one game sample is going to tangibly hurt your stock. You know, it's, I think, kind of impossible. Like the guy that maybe most has questions about him right now, just due to what his 56 minute or whatever sample was this year is Michael Porter. He struggled in his game against Florida State. I know he went for something like 15 points and 10 rebounds, but if you watch that game, it's clear that he didn't have the burst that he uh, would have liked and that we saw in him out of high school. It was clear that he was out there just chucking shots with reckless abandon and kind of changed the complexion of what, you know, Missouri wanted to do. If you look at what his, you know, percentage of shots taken while on the floor was uh, during his, you know, like I said, I think it was like 56 minutes or whatever it was for Missouri. He took 42.8% of their shots while he was on the floor. Uh, let, let's compare that to Trey Young, who most people think was shooting too much. Trey Young took 34% of his team's shots while he was on the floor. So that was the kind of situation you were dealing with in terms of the selfishness that Michael Porter was playing with. But at the same time, it, it's just a one-game sample of a guy coming off of an injury. I, I don't think that it can negatively affect someone that much. What's going to affect Porter more is how he performs in workouts, what it looks like he's doing when he goes to work with his trainers this summer, and how he goes in interviews with NBA teams, because I think they have a lot of questions about him right now uh, in terms of being a great teammate and doing some of the things that he showcased while he was on the bench. So, and, you know, making sure that he cares about his teammates. So I think that a one game sample, even in a bad case scenario like Michael Porter, still doesn't necessarily harm you as much as, you know, showcasing over the course of four and five games that you aren't ready. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think uh, intuitively, while there could be some flexibility for those guys at the top, it does seem like there are kind of some pockets that are pretty well settled. It made more of a difference for certain players who got knocked out early who were later in the process who could have used extra games to boost their stock because they are less established. And so a guy I thought of like that would be Aaron Holiday. Granted, UCLA wasn't going to make it any further. All they would have done is beaten St. Bonaventure and then lost summarily to Florida in the next round. But, Probably. And any of those type of guys who were more in the 20s or 30s, Miami, if they had been able to make it a little more, Lonnie Walker is going to be in this draft, of course, and he's not in the 20s, but but somebody like that. And and so for those type of players, yeah, maybe maybe it could have helped them a little bit. Well, but, well, like, here's the thing. That's a great example of Aaron Holiday, though. Aaron Holiday played his worst game of the season against St. Bonaventure. He had 10 turnovers. At uh, the end of the game, he had three straight possessions where he turned the ball over, took a terrible shot. He played like trash by his standards this year. And you know what? No one really cares. Like, he, he has shown enough sample to where people know what he is and that, you know, he's still probably going to be either a late first or early second round pick. Okay, so that's a good way to transition into the players at, at really any level, but I'm thinking more of the first round if that's kind of where you want to focus. The players who used this three weeks or whatever they got out of it sure. and, and elevated themselves the most. Yeah, I would point to a few guys. Uh, the first one I would say is Shea Alexander at Kentucky. He is very good. 
he is just a very, very good basketball player, I think. Six foot six with, uh, something like a seven foot wingspan. I don't know if it's going to exactly measure out to seven feet or what. Knocks down 40% of his threes this year, 82% of his free throws, 50% in the lane and from two point range. I'm sorry, he was higher than that in the lane. He's a very good finisher at the basket. But you look at what his performances were over the course, I would say even from February 20th onward. So Ken Palm has a metric where he like assigns an MVP for every game, right? Over the course of Kentucky's last, I want to say it was 10 games, Shea was the MVP of seven of them. He was just a monster. You watch the Buffalo game, 27 points, six rebounds, six assists. Watch the Davidson game, 19 points, seven assists, eight rebounds. Uh, You know, even the Kansas State game, he still got where he wanted on the basketball floor. He turned the ball over a little bit too much. He struggled to deal with uh, what Kansas State was presenting to him in terms of pick and roll coverages. But at the same time, he still goes for 15 points, five assists, five rebounds. He's just an overall productive basketball player that I think should be selected in the lottery at this stage, to be honest. He, he is just going to be so fungible in terms of the way NBA teams can use him because you can play him off the ball as a kind of creative secondary lead handler. You can play him on the ball just as a pure lead ball handler. He's a good enough passer to do that now. Or you can just like kind of sick him as a one through three positional defender. He's still a little bit skinny, but I feel confident in the way that he battles on that end. He fights and he really gets through screens and he does a lot. So uh, he, he's the kind of guy that I think really, really helped himself with his performance over the course of the last couple of weeks. Yeah, he's a fascinating player. I watched a little bit of Kentucky this time. I tried to focus on the players that I know I'm not I'm going to I'm not going to do video on, you know, the really intense stuff because then you get into some sample sure. bias issues. And so Kentucky, the Kentucky guys they were actually a great NCAA tournament team for me. And I think the logic, I'm not saying they're the same player because they are not. But some of the logic of Frank Nokina applies to Shea because mm-hmm. the idea being, okay, well, even if the best case scenario cuz the best case scenario for both those guys is versatile defender, high-end defender, who can also run the offense and ideally hit open shots. So even if that best case scenario doesn't quite pan out, there are a lot of different, you know, in the, in the universe of options that are, that are exist for a player universe of outcomes, a lot of those suboptimal ones are still a productive player. And in both of their cases, and I would say arguably more in, in, in Shea's case than in Frank's, those outcomes are even potentially at a starter level, just because the offense was such a big question mark for Nilkina, and it isn't as much in this case. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, Shea's a little bit more polished offensively. He's a more polished finisher. I trust the jump shot a little bit more with Shea than I trust it fully with Frank. They both have some question marks there, despite some pretty solid percentages uh, over the course of the last year, I think we could say even. But Nilakina is probably a slightly better defender just because his frame, uh, his shoulders are a little bit wider. He's a little bit stronger. Certainly, they're both incredibly long. But if I was comparing the two as prospects, I, I would I think I'd probably rather have Frank by just a little bit. But I think they're very, very close. And everything you said is right. The same reason that, you know, we liked Frank Nilakina 
last year as a prospect, we should like Shea Alexander because he's a guy that is going to come in immediately and, and be able to create an impact because of his positional versatility. You could, you could play two guards next to him if you wanted to, much in the same way that Toronto often does with DeLon Wright, right? Like they'll throw, you know, Kyle Lowry and Frank, or uh, I'm sorry, Fred Van Vliet out there occasionally. And it, it's just fine because DeLon has the size to battle with opposing threes sometimes. So, that's the kind of stuff that I look at. I want guys who can play versatile positions and because they have that versatile position, their bus factor is just so minimal because there are just a lot of different ways that you can get their skill set out of them and onto the basketball floor. I think a good way of talking about the three point guards that are around that same level, Shea, Colin Sexton, and Trey Young, is just a question I will defer entirely to you on, which is how reliably, if your best guess right now, because obviously we can't know this if we knew it would be very rich people, based on what you know right now, how comfortable do you think those guys are creating separation against NBA caliber athletes? Huh, that's a really good question. I think Colin is probably the best at creating separation of the three. He just has a lightning quick first step. He has the best differentiation in his ball handling ability, both left to right, right to left, and in terms of change of pace. I think Trey Young also gets good separation, not necessarily elite level separation, but he gets good enough separation to where he is able to take the pull-up jumpers that he likes to take, where Trey struggles a little bit, and I'm a little bit worried about this. He takes a ton of free throws, obviously, in college, and some people, I believe that it's been shown that like statistically free throw rate does translate reasonably well from college to the NBA. But with him, some of his fouls, I think, in the way that he attacks the rim are a little bit worrisome to me because he's really not a good finisher at the rim. And I think whenever you put elite level rim protectors in there against him, sure, he's really good at just kind of going into their body and drawing contact. But NBA rim protectors at the highest level, like Joel Embiid, even a guy like uh, Clint Capella, who I think is probably a tier below those top-level rim protectors, they're very good at just keeping their ground and keeping their verticality uh, intact and making sure that they don't foul. So some of those fouls are a little bit worrisome for me with Trey Young as he tries to get separation inside. Finally, I would say that Shea Alexander has very, very good change of pace, has good change of direction. I feel a little bit less confident in him gaining separation against NBA players. I I just don't think that he's the kind of athlete from a fluid standpoint that Trey Young is or from an explosive standpoint that Colin Sexton is. But at the same token, he has so much more leeway with which he can deal with because he's six foot six with a seven foot wingspan. He can just finish over smaller guards. He can just kind of uh, shoot over smaller guards in mismatch situations. So it, it, it all kind of balances out in a little bit of ways. I think they all have their strengths and they all have their weaknesses. Like Colin Sexton, it, the question is, what does he do once he get the, gets that separation? I still don't think we really have a terrific answer to that question yet. And what I find so compelling about players of that of that kind of tier where you, you don't know exactly how it's going to work out, but they certainly have some talent, is that let's call them all point guards, though Shea could defend different positions depending on how this works out. Even if, let's say, one or all of them end up not being on the starter line, odds are, and a guy I'm thinking of here, for especially for Trey Young, is Shabazz Napier, who has just had such a successful season. A little bit of a surprise to me after how he disappointed earlier on 
is that they can have a nice, valuable career as a either a second unit guy or a eventual replacement or something like that. And while the NBA is getting pretty strong in terms of point guard depth, those types of players, the, basically it is just as a matter of principle, it is impossible for there to be too many of them in the league, especially now that if a team has too many of them, they just play two of them. Yeah, I know. Like, again, Toronto, I think, has done a really good job of that this season, despite the fact that both Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry are, they're remarkably undersized, I would say. Like, Kyle battles and Fred battles, but they're both like six foot tall. And the fact that they can play both of those guys together, I think says a lot about the way that the NBA is going. You can never have too many shot creators who can also knock down shots on the floor together. Even if you give away a little bit of something defensively, even if you, you know, give away a little something in terms of size and length, it still just behooves you to be able to have multiple shot creators who can shoot out on the basketball floor offensively. It's just the easiest way for you to get efficient offense. It's why uh, the Rockets have been unlocked this season in a lot of ways with Chris Paul and James Harden. It's why the Warriors, in my opinion, have been so successful. I mean, not only do they have four tried and true, you know, all-stars, they have Three guys in Draymond Green, Kevin Durant, and Stephen Curry who can all initiate offense. I would even look at Indiana as another example of this. Indiana, uh, with the way that Victor Oladipo has unlocked his ability to shoot off the dribble and initiate offense, and you can play him with a point guard regularly. That helps so much in terms of them certainly exceeding expectations this season. So you can never have too much shot creation on the floor as long as those shot creators can also knock down shots. And that second part is so important because that also gives them a, a good skill set for attacking in the case of a closeout or something like that. You know, it is very different. You could even think of, if you want to go to the most extreme example here, Steph Curry or James Harden. Like if they play and Curry is way better off ball than Harden is. So even in the circumstance where somebody gets out to Curry and closes out well, well, great, then he's going to take like three or four dribbles, probably going to either create an open shot for a teammate or get to the basket, get fouled or something like that. And it's a lot easier for somebody who has gone through life as a point guard to make those sorts of plays than it is for somebody else. So if all other things are equal, which they very rarely are, they're in a better position to seize that advantage. Yeah, no, 100%, especially with how, you know, switch heavy NBA teams have gone toward in terms of their system. Anyone who can tangibly take advantage of a mismatch situation now is so valuable. And those guys tend to be the guys who can create their own shot, right? The guys who can, you know, find that little bit of separation, that little bit of space. You know, obviously for a long time, we went toward this paradigm of efficiency, efficiency, efficiency being the most important part of basketball. But, you know, I think that we're starting to realize more and more in terms of our evaluations that being able to create your shot is just as important, but it's harder to quantify that in a lot of ways because, uh, you know, I think PER tries to do a reasonable bit of it just by like incorporating usage rate to the extent that it does. But PER is obviously a very flawed stat in a lot of ways, as I'm sure even John Hollinger would admit now, given some of the tools at his disposal in Memphis. But like at the same time, it's just a very, it's a shifting paradigm and it's one that requires balance in terms of efficiency and creation. 
Yeah, and also opportunity can can be a big factor in that as well. And I mean, some of the some of the limitations with usage are are related to opportunity. I think uh, any, anything else kind of so no point guards really jumped into that conversation. I mean, you could say that Shea did originally, and now he's in it. But it kind of, there there is a pretty big gulf between them and everybody else, as I understand it. Yeah, I think so. But I, I would also point out that there are about a billion point guards uh, late in this draft right now who have declared that have a shot to go like anywhere from 20 to uh, like 50 even. like so, just a, So kind of a, like Frank Mason model, like guys that probably are more likely to be a backup than a starter but are capable, that kind of an idea. Right, right. Like Javon Carter, Landry Shamit, Aaron Holiday, Shake Milton, DeAnthony Melton, Devontae Graham, Anthony Simons, Trayvon Duval. Tony Carr and those are the guys that only have or have already officially declared their intention I mean we could throw out Carson Edwards, Shamori Pons, Kyrie Thomas like there are so many of these guys that are going to be like uh, one or two or combo guards so to speak that uh, I really like the depth at that position in this draft class I think it's going to help bring up the level of backup point guard play that you and I often talk about as being a little bit lacking in the NBA now even though I think this year it's gotten a little bit better it has and they also could end up just due to the nature of of the draft and everything else being a key factor on two-way contracts I think that is something that we've seen on a couple of these different teams is that First of all, in order to evaluate young guys in the G League, having quality point guard play is incredibly important. But also, yep. I mean, some of this is is my own, you know, experience covering Quinn Cook and the Warriors and everything like that is it's a very important position to have capability that you can add in. And the two-way contract is so much easier than doing it on a 10-day or something like that. So I'm sure all those guys don't want to be two-way contract players. I think they, they want to be beyond that. But eventually, probably one or two of them will fall out of it. And they'll For provide sure. real value there too. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that I think NBA teams have done this year, which is really intriguing to me is they have not really used two-way contracts on big men. If you look around the league, I mean, I think that there are like four like true big guys that have two-way contracts. I think it's something like Luke Cornett, uh, Mango Mathiang was on one trying to think who the other one, who the other ones were like there, there are Chris Boucher was one in Golden State, but he was obviously recovering from an injury. These contracts are going more toward forwards. Like I was having a very public Twitter discussion about this with Detroit Pistons assistant coach Rex Walters. And, you know, we were talking about it in the context of Yudoka Azubuki, the big bodied center at Kansas. And I was like, you know what? Like, I know that these two way contracts have tended not to go to centers, but I think that he kind of fits the mold of a guy you want to like maybe select, put on a two way and develop because he at least is seven feet tall, has a seven foot seven wingspan, uh, has a big frame that you can see utilized as a rim runner at some point, but he just has such significant flaws as a rebounder and as a, uh, defender in space that I think you want to try and work with them. Rex was not having that necessarily, but uh, I would, I would say that I like the way that teams are utilizing those two way contracts because it made me, this conversation made me look at just the amount of players that are being kind of used on these two ways and the positions that are being emphasized. And it's very clear to me that perimeter players and forwards are what teams are looking at right now for these two ways. They, they want guys that can let, allow them to go small. They're using these two ways uh, as just flyers to take on potential rotational like forwards, rotational wings and rotational guards. 
a lot of the teams that have been most successful with two ways have been have done them in that vein as well. You know, especially two through four. So those Clippers, I mean, C.J. Williams yeah. and Tyrone Wallace, they're a massive success story in terms of two way contracts. I, I'm not sure either one of those guys is super thrilled with how it turned out for them in the immediate. We'll see if they can parlay that into a training camp or even gar- partially guaranteed contract for next year. Tori- it's funny because like in so many ways, the two way is good because it opens up more money for like 60 players to get paid but it's really bad if you end up actually being good yeah <laughs> like it, it the sucks limitations. if you end up being good sure and, and and that might be something in a future cba that they'll they'll tighten that up a little bit just to make it to make it a little bit better but also like tory craig on the on the yeah. nuggets they've needed tory craig because of all the the injuries and th- the two three and four especially the three it's just such a shallow position in the NBA right now that if you can get a low cost flyer so that when, you know, a couple of guys are hurt or sick or suspended or whatever that you can have instead of overextending your fours or overextending your twos, it's incredibly valuable. Yeah. And I mean, if you, it's funny, like if you look at the teams that have actually utilized their like two ways to a high level, you look at a team like the Knicks, who I think we would all agree uh, are mismanaged about every which way that you can be, and they sign two true big guys to two-way contracts and have gotten very little out of Isaiah Hicks and Luke Cornett. But you look at a team like Atlanta, you know, I think they've actually gotten decent use out of Andrew White and Josh Maggett uh, is a guy that's a professional point guard who's going to be able to come in and uh, actually help your G League team be good. I think that he's probably a significant reason why Malik Rose was the G League executive of the year and their G League team ended up win or uh, I think they won their division this year. So it's just little stuff like that. Just keep taking advantage of the opportunities that are afforded to you with these two-way contracts and, and just keep taking flyers on guys that play positions that could actually tangibly get on the floor now because there are just so few chances for bigs to get on the floor. Plenty more to talk about with Sam, but going to take a quick moment to tell you about our new sponsor, Hims. And Hims is awesome because it is aiming to solve a problem that many men deal with. And I'm kind of right on the cusp of this. And what's intimidating is that about two thirds of men lose their hair in in some form by the age of 35. As somebody who's about to turn 33, I'm very, very cognizant of this. And what Hims encourages, which I think is such a, a great idea, and the execution now in the age of the internet is so much easier, is the idea of being proactive with it. Because the basic point is that once you start to notice hair loss, it's too late. So you want to be proactive. You don't want to be trying to put it back where you could have prevented it from going away in the first place. And that could be, you know, hairline moving backwards, ball spots, thinning, all that sort of stuff. So what you can do, it's pretty awesome. You go to forhims.com. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S.com. And it's more than just hair. It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. And they use the idea that thanks to science, baldness can be optional. And so they connect you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat hair loss. These are well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions, no waiting rooms, no awkward visits. And you just answer a few quick questions, the doctor will view it and you can get a prescription and the products are shipped directly to your door. And it's just such an important part of taking care of yourself. And what I've learned, if you want to talk about exercise, you want to talk about skincare, anything like that. Being 
ahead of the curve is a whole lot easier than trying to make it up on the back end. And with hair, I'm finding it out both with myself and with my friends that it's the exact same approach. This should not be a surprise. And so what you can do is if you go to forhims.com, F-O-R-H-I-M-S.com slash real, R-E-A-L, it's a URL this time, you get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today while supplies last. You can see the website for full details. It would cost hundreds of dollars if you went to doctor or pharmacy. Again, that URL is F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash real, R-E-A-L. And you can check it out. Five months for a free trial month. Pretty fantastic. I wanted to ask you about somebody because I'm completely unfamiliar due to the structure of everything, unless you you would actually know if I've seen him before, but Anthony Simons reclassified to be a part of the 2018 draft despite not playing in college. Have you, sure. seen, have you seen him play and like, is he actually like a first round talent? I've seen him play. I've seen him play probably a little bit less than I would have liked to have seen at this stage, given the fact that he's going to be, you know, entering this draft. From what I've seen, he's still just a ways away. Like he he is very skinny. He is six foot four with long arms and you know quick twitchy muscles, and you know he can go up and finish above the rim. But I don't think he's a consistent enough shooter yet to where you would feel wholly confident putting him on a basketball floor. Like there's, he's kind of like quicker twitch Rashad Vaughn almost like Rashad Vaughn was quick twitchy and or, or was slow twitchy but could really knock down shots and create shots on the college level but it just never really translated to the NBA if you could give Rashad Vaughn some quicker twitch muscles and you know have that same level of skinniness and that same level of shot creation ability I think that's kind of what you're talking about with Simons now a, a big part of the reason that Vaughn is out of the NBA is he couldn't create the requisite separation to consistently get open looks for himself. I think there's a chance that Simons could do that, but he's like 175 pounds right now. Like he, He's just going to get knocked off the ball by any sort of physical defender, even in the G League, I think. Yeah, I mean, you think about somebody, he's skinnier than Terrence Ferguson was, right? Hmm. I feel like that's, I feel like that's the new scale for, for swingmen. Yeah, I, I don't think that's crazy. I mean, he probably is a little bit skinnier. Yeah. And he, I like, he's like, I like but Ferguson the other thing lot, is, like, but... Simons is a little bit more of a combo guard, whereas mm-hmm. Ferguson's a little bit more of a wing. True. And this, I mean, combo guards certainly still have value if they can create the aforementioned separation. But it's, it's intriguing how this class is kind of turning out in terms of pure wings because they have, Players like Michael Porter, who are more more kind of on the on the forwardy side, or, or I use the term swingman for twos and threes. It, it all gets confusing because we all use slightly different jargon. Yeah, I go I go for reference to listeners. Leads are lead ball handlers. Wings are just wings, like two three traditional wings. Forwards are your threes and fours who can kind of float between the positions or just play the four automatically. Uh, and then bigs are just fives. Yeah. Okay. So, like, there aren't that many just straight threes in this draft. I mean, Mikhail Bridges seems like he'll be able to defend at that yep. level. Miles Bridges, probably. I think you feel comfortable with that. I think he's more of a combo, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, it's probably. And, I mean, Porter's more of a combo. Kevin Knox is more of a combo. Yep. Zyre, I think it's a, what do you think about Zaire Smith? He's, he's I think it's a big reason. Yeah, I think it's a big reason why people are very excited about Zaire Smith right now because there are so few true wings in this draft class. Um, I, I would also point to Chandler Hutchison mm-hmm. as one. Uh, I think it, he's going to be Troy like Brown a, too small. I think Troy is not Troy six seven with like a six eleven wingspan. I think okay. he's probably a true three. You can probably make the case that John and Musa 
is kind of a true three ish. Like he depends on how much he can gain separation and how his game defensively has improved over the course of the last year. I think we'll get an impression of that soon. But yeah, Zaire Smith, I mean, he's tough. Zaire's really, really tough because on like, I think if you put him into a, into an NBA game right now, he would probably be one of the five worst offensive players in an NBA game right now. But he has the mechanics to eventually shoot it with consistency. He is an absolute freak athlete, just a total freak show athlete in the best way possible. You know, great body control, uh, great explosiveness, quick twitch muscles laterally, you know, gets can defend anyone in space that he needs to, can protect the weak side of the rim. Like, he's just a freak show defensively because of that athleticism. And the key, though, is that he's not really super comfortable dribbling the basketball yet. He's not super comfortable shooting from three where he gets so many of his points are either out in transition or on back cuts, and those are harder points to come by in the NBA. So I'm a little bit lower on him than I think a lot of the internet is, at least. Uh, I think that there's been a rush to anoint him as like a potential lottery pick and it wouldn't be like totally crazy if a team fell in love with him at that level and decided to pick him in the lottery. But like I have him in the twenties right now just because I really think like he has a lot of polish still to go on his game. Like he needs to do a lot to make it so that, you know, he can play a significant role at the next level offensively. Two other guys that I'm intrigued by, maybe not necessarily in this camp, but just kind of along the same lines. Hamadou Diallo, to me, seems like more of a two than a three, though I don't know how long it's going to take for him to be NBA ready if he ever really is as an offensive player. And then Shake Milton, I just don't know who he defends at the NBA level. Like, is he is he versatile? Is he kind of a tweener? Like, where do you see Shake Milton working out? So with Diallo, the key is playing as hard defensively as he did late in the season. I think he actually helped himself a little bit in the SEC tournament and in the NCAA tournament because he made people remember that he has these tools and he knows how to utilize them defensively whenever he wants to. The key is convincing him to do that on a nightly basis. He's still 6'5 with a 7-foot wingspan, and he's still probably the best athlete in this draft class. That's going to get you drafted, I would say, most of the time. But he, he really does need to show that he is going to be a higher IQ basketball player than what we saw this year at Kentucky. He really struggled to make decisions on the basketball floor this year. And offensively, he's just not a good enough ball handler and not a good enough shooter to make an impact on that side of the floor in half-court settings. So uh, I look at that as a pretty significant concern for uh, Hamadou Diallo. And then with Shake Milton, he kind of strikes me as less creative Shea Alexander uh, they have similar frames in that they're a little bit narrow shoulders, shouldered compared to what you would like to see from, you know, a true wing player. But he does knock down shots at an extremely consistent rate. I think he's one of a few guys in this class, maybe like one or two along with Aaron Holiday and maybe there are a couple others who can say that they've knocked down 40% of their threes in each of the last three seasons. He also has a lot of ball skills. He can really pass the ball. He averages over five assists a night. Again, though, not like elite at creating separation for himself. So I look at uh, Shake Milton. I think that he can defend ones and twos to be sure. The question is just at what level is he 
going to be an average defender or does he have it in him to push himself to that next level as he needs to to become an elite role player to where he can be an awesome defender of ones and twos at the NBA level? Yeah, I'm really intrigued with with what he could end up being and just the potential value in that, even if it is as a backup. I think just having somebody like Shake Milton on your roster can be valuable. Yeah, like I love the idea of Portland drafting him. Portland, obviously, with C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard and Shabazz Napier seeming uh, like he might be a piece for them going forward. Getting a guy that's six foot six who can kind of play with all three of those guys seems very valuable to me. Uh, another guy who can create, you know, his own shot a little bit, but can also knock down shots off the bounce. I think Terry Stotts would really find interesting ways to utilize that guy. I think I'm ready to, unless there's somebody who you think that I missed in this conversation, that it, ready to move on to, to the bigs a little bit. And I think kind of the, the place to start with it is where is the, where do you think the lines of separation are right now for the bigs in this class? Like Aiden, it seems to me like there's a little bit of separation between Aiden and then everybody else. And then is there a kind of a, a, a group that you feel comfortable with after that? I don't know that I would say there's a separation between Aiton and the rest upside-wise, but like DeAndre Aiton's floor is ridiculous. It's hard to envision a, envision a world where he doesn't at least average like 15 and 9 at the next level, right? Or like 17 and 10 or something, which is just insane, right? But like you look at him and this guy is legitimately – I mean I've been trying to come up with the guy who I think is the biggest like freak show to enter the NBA since LeBron James athletically physically and just like in terms of where his body is I really think it might be Aiton right like like he he really might be just the most physically imposing physically powerful player to enter the NBA since LeBron James yeah because he's a very different style and people will see this more when he's at summer league I think that'll be when it starts to swing for people like Anthony Davis was a phenomenal talent and I would say Davis was a, a from what I've seen so far, and I'm going to watch a lot more Aiden in the next couple months, I think Davis was a significantly better prospect. But purely physically, if that's all we're looking at, Aiden just with his strength was a different kind. Of, he's a different kind of build that I think is really intriguing. Yeah, for sure. Like he, he's just one of those dudes that I look at and I'm just like, how do you injure this person? Like with Anthony Davis, we always had the injury concerns just because he was so skinny. With Aiton, he's just so physically built and like everything is so proportional, uh, like going up from his like legs all the way up through his upper half. I, I just don't know how you injure that player. And, and that I think is another factor that, you know, you look at with some of these guys and you have to worry about. But, uh, just in terms of frame, like is this guy going to continue to build out his frame in the way that we like? But with Aiton, he's already got it. You, you don't have to really worry about uh, him developing physically. It's all just about teaching him how to defend, and I think the right coach can do that. They have to because that's such an important part of it. And because Aiton, to me, he doesn't have as much skill. Versatility is probably a better word for it. With the ball in his hands as, and sure. again, this is comparing him to ludicrously good people. But let's say Carl Anthony Towns or Nicole yep. Jokic or even Joel Embiid. I don't think he's at that at that level. Of, I think he might be where Embiid was, but like Towns attacking closeouts, no. I mean, Jokic being able to just grab and go on the break at six foot eleven like that, and Bass, no, he's not like that. But I, you know, like post moves, and you know, he can take one dribble off of a closeout. Like he can do some stuff. He's not quite on those guys' level, though. 
Sure. And so the point that I was getting at with that is just that if you're not going to reach that crazy level, then defense is a, a mandatory part of it. And that doesn't mean being elite. I mean, sure, sure it would help. I mean, that's what would make him all NBA. Theoretically, that's what would put him in an MVP conversation should he ever get there. And Aiton is physically capable of all things. So I'm not, I'm not questioning that capability. But as a practical matter, you have to be able to dissuade other teams. And I mean, this is a challenge that teams are dealing with all over. If you want to be that high level starter, second unit guy can go, you can go wild. You can be a a shaky defensive player, but drafting a guy, number one, that's not what you're looking for. Yeah, no, you you need a guy who is going to be uh, elite on both ends of the floor, or at least be passable on both ends of the floor. Like we're finally getting to that stage with Carl Towns, where he, I would say, what, around like January probably started to really figure things out defensively and since then has been pretty okay. Yeah, it kind of comes in fits and starts with him, and it can be hard to evaluate Towns because of all the other just weirdness that's going on with with Minnesota's defense. But yeah, yeah, I'd say he's been better since a rough start. I think that's fair, and I don't know how much of it is him figuring it out or you know some of the shifts of personnel. But yeah, I think he's been better. Yeah, and like it's not about being like a tried and true difference maker with him. Although I think everyone would hope that he gets to that level because he's so good offensively, he doesn't need to be that, and he can still be an all NBA player. Sure. And and that's one of the strangest parts of the center paradigm right now is this idea of centers that are so good offensively that you can tolerate defense that is below that standard. That has not been the MO of the position for elite physical talents. You know, the elite physical talents are almost always defensive players that figure it out offensively. You can go to, I mean, and that doesn't mean those guys are bad offensively. I mean, obviously they're going in that direction. It's more, I mean, Shaq was just such a hard comparison to anybody else. But maybe more more in that line, because I always, you know, with the centers, you, you can go in the, you know, Tim Duncan style mold, where I thought Tim Duncan's defense was just, that was transcendent earlier than his offense was, even though the offense was maybe appreciated early just due to what, what happened with those San Antonio teams. And with these players, it's it's a very, it's a different world. And I think a lot of them, as, as we see so much with young guys, they'll figure it out because we don't usually see young players this big that are this capable offensively in their early 20s. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Carl Towns is absurd just in so many ways. It's, it's just so fun to watch him. Just like he's gotten better at attacking closeouts from year one to year two to year three where he can handle the ball like a wing on those plays. And, and he like makes the kick out pass now too. He's just totally ridiculous. And with all of these players, Towns, Jokic, Embiid, Embiid maybe in particular, there's so much more room to grow. And that, going back to, I remember when Andre Drummond had that great rookie season, and as a lot of it was relative to expectations, he was super productive. The reason why some of us were really, really excited about that was not only just young guy doing well, but because there was a real track record that young players who delivered to the extent that he did just by, you could call it correlation, but it was a heavy enough correlation that it was interesting, often ended up becoming very successful NBA guys. And so with these players, I'm not sure that there is a direct parallel just because this is something new, but generally speaking, guys get a lot better on both ends of the floor. Basically, it's this kind of question. It's been, you know, this is what gets to the idea of peaks in the NBA. And really what it is, is it's the intersection of skill development versus athletic decline. And 
mm-hmm. and and that skill development plus experience. I mean, experience and and learning and all that kind of stuff. Kind of they they go together because it's too well, hard. It's too hard to separate them. And just like honestly, talent too. Sure. Like like <laughs> I mean, like uh, talent. Just starting talent, I guess, is the way to put it. Versus the skill decline that you mentioned, that I think is a really great point. Uh, that often kind of gets you know, a little bit forgotten there in terms of how early these guys can start to decline physically. Yeah, for me, it's all just like finding that perfect situation to foster a player's development. And I think a lot of the time, that's why I tend to default more to caring about guys being really good offensively as opposed to guys being really good defensively. Like there's been this idea from some people to move Jaron Jackson ahead of Marvin Bagley on their board. And I I understand the idea behind it, but I, I care a lot more about just being able to produce and being able to translate athletically. And, and I assume that going to the right skill development situation will help to foster the rest of the picture. And, and you know, like uh, a great way to put this is, you know, you watch Jaron Jackson play, right? Like Jaron Jackson has been in really strong developmental situations throughout the entirety of his career, uh, even going back to high school and now playing for Tom Izzo and, you know, Dwayne Stevens and a lot of the guys up there at Michigan State who do an excellent job defending and, you know, teaching both sides of the floor. You look at what he was able to do this year. You have to be impressed with the fact that he was able to be such an impressive defender early in his career. You have to be impressed with the fact that he can knock down threes, but he still doesn't really create for himself. He has a 19% turnover rate. He doesn't ever pass the ball. His role was just so limited in scope this year offensively that they made it so simple for him to be an effective player. In Marvin Bagley's case, Duke relied on him to do so much like in games where he didn't play all that well it was hard for them to really get what they needed out of a team and like some of what he does isn't as aesthetically pleasing maybe on the eyes like you know he'll just throw up a shot off the backboard but because he knows his second jump is quicker than literally everyone else's in the world he can just go up and get the ball and that's just like a pass to himself uh it's a legal pass to himself and you know he i think he's shown a little bit more passing the ball than what he's been given credit for this year i think he can he's a better shooter than what he's been given credit for this year he shot 38 percent from three and his mechanics look pretty good so I think that role is very important. I think that uh, whenever you talk about Marvin Bagley's defense, it has to be noted that he played for his dad for like the last three years and then went to a situation at Duke where Coach K and that entire staff have not really had a great defense in a long time. Uh, I think that this year, whenever they went to the zone, was the first time that they did, but it was a zone defense, and that's not really applicable to what they're going to be doing defensively in, in the NBA. So... Like, it's so situational. It's so important. You have to put all of this into context and you have to try and figure out how a player is going to be fostered developmentally once they get to that level, depending on who they're with. Yeah, and that gets into an idea we've talked about before in terms of if you could theoretically re-rank guys after they get drafted. Basically, the combination of player and situation is this year, I think, is going to be incredibly important. And some of that is due to the teams that are picking at the bottom being decidedly a mixed bag, let's call it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you, you could say it's a mixed bag. Uh, I, I would say that, well, we've got uh, we've got Sacramento there. That's probably not all that exciting. We've got Phoenix, who is 
I'd say Phoenix has been more hit or miss than they're given credit for. Like, I think a lot of people just kind of assume that's kind of a bad spot. But, you know, they developed Devin Booker. I think that Josh Jackson has really come along since basically January. He's been really, really good. And then you've got Atlanta. You've got Dallas, who have both been excellent, I think, developmentally for a while now. So going to be hit or miss, especially when you count New York and Orlando there. Yeah, but at this, so basically I think a lot of us are just going to be rooting for all these guys to end up in Dallas. <laughs> Or Atlanta. Like, yeah. I'm, as long as Budenholzer stays there, I think that if a guy goes to Atlanta, he's probably fine. And we have absolutely no idea what to make. I, I mean, uh, how I feel about who Cleveland drafts is going to be super weird because at that point... On draft night, we're not going to have any idea. Yeah. I mean, I'll, have, I'll have an idea of that player, presumably, but where it's going to work out... Going to take a quick moment to tell you about our friends at TrueCar. Here are some useful car tips you might not be aware of. A coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage. And you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Weird, right? Well, here's another tip you might not know about. TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right. TrueCar is not just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you will enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid, so they know if they are getting a good deal before buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you are ready to buy a new car or a used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. I wonder with this draft, because we'll just have to kind of see how it shakes out of this. It's always this balance between best player available and need and fit. And I like the way that Chad Ford talked about this for a long time, which is basically the idea of, of tiers. And so basically you can take the best fit within your tier, but you really don't want to reach down a tier because that's a lot of times when teams make mistakes. And so how each of these teams draws those lines is going to be important. But at the same time, when you look at those rosters, there are a lot of players that I'm sure those teams really like, but there also, with a few exceptions, are not that many players who I would say are so good that you should avoid taking a player that conflicts with them for that reason alone. And so which of those teams see it that way? There could obviously be differences of opinion with individual players. Devin Booker is one of those. Maybe some of the, like Dennis, Dennis Smith could be one of those guys as well. Mm-hmm. But those questions are going to be absolute, or, or I mean, Orlando, I don't know how Orlando feels about their guys, but that's going to be so interesting with this draft of like balancing out who do you think is best, who fits with your team, and also the actual results of the lottery will be important there too. I just implore Orlando to take the best guard. Just take the best guard. <laughs> Whoever you have highest on your board, please, because... Like Jonathan Isaac and Aaron Gordon, when they've played together this year, they have a 90.6 defensive rating. Aaron Gordon has taken a big leap forward this year offensively to where he can actually kind of create shots for himself now. The three-point shooting after the torrid start has fallen back down to earth, obviously. But they have like a 94 offensive rating when they're on the floor together, I think in large part because we need to see how those two can develop with a competent point guard and competent guard play next to them. And I I just, 
Orlando needs to just take the best guard. Just take whichever one you think is best and can help foster the development of the rest of your players. Because fitting in within the construct of the rest of your roster, I think, is something that is often drastically underrated. And the way that it's underrated is because of the way it affects the development of those other players on your roster. If you draft overlapping players consistently and you draft overlapping skill sets consistently, if you continue to show a disregard for shooting the basketball and spacing the floor, it's going to hinder the way those guys develop. You need to find a way to really just, you know, lock down what you can do in terms of, helping your own players develop once they're under contract for you. And also it's so important in terms of evaluation because you just need to know what you, development is is true, but knowing what the heck you have in a guy, if you don't have shot creation around them is incredibly dangerous because that can lead to you trading somebody too early. It can lead to you holding on to somebody a little too long to say, oh, well, all we need is X. And then you get that. And for Orlando. Shout out Mario Hazonia. Yeah, I, I mean, to a point. And also, we're seeing the league change so much that's in certain circumstances. Also, not shout out to Julia Okafor, who maybe we, we kind of had that, oh, what about a change of scenery? And the change of scenery has not helped. And and that happens. Yeah. It certainly does. But <laughs> that, that did not work for Ja. Yeah, and it, it, it's a part of this. And so you have to kind of kind of piece it together. And hopefully this influx of, of point guards, also theoretically, if the money is right, a little bit of an influx of a couple more competent European point guards could really help too. Just just steady hand, you know, type Tato yeah. such types would be really useful just to build the to build the baseline a little bit. Shout and, out Kevin Pangos. Yeah, that would be how old is he now? Is he like twenty six? Uh probably something like that. Maybe twenty seven, twenty five actually. Oh he's twenty five until January next year, but he's like one of the best point guards in the Euroleague right now and one of the best point guards uh in Europe right now, which is awesome. Is Yule he's hurt right now, right? I think I remember something like that. Correct. He, he tore his ACL like at the beginning of their EuroLeague season, which kind of you know created this pathway for Luka Doncic to just totally take over ex- everything that they were doing. Yeah. So let's. I, I didn't think of this as a transition, but let's transition to the Luka Doncic. I mean, he's had this remarkable season. He, I think it's pretty impressive that because of the European structure, that it sounds like what he basically got was just a couple weeks off to to recharge his batteries. But it seems like it's working out. He's playing had another big game, including a game winner after his return. Yeah, against Red Star, that was a really really impressive uh, game from him. I think that Mike Schmitz was there even, and he was kind of talking about it online. Uh, <laughs> Luka Doncic right now in Euroleague is averaging seventeen points five rebounds and five assists a night in 25 minutes a night. He is just so bananas in terms of what he does every single game as a recently turned 19-year-old in what is inarguably the second best competition in the entire world. I mean, you just can't get over how easily he creates shots both for himself and for others. The fact that he's shooting 30% from three this year I think is a little bit concerning I I would like to see him get that up just a little bit more because it's going to be such an essential part of his game but a lot of those are tough shots for him uh he is so much on his shoulders right now that I think he's probably a little bit better of a three-point shooter than what the percentages actually say yeah he's just unbelievable in, in the way that he operates I mean he is going to be 19 years old, having played a majority of the season at 18 years old, and he might win the EuroLeague MVP. Like he is 
probably, I don't know if he's the betting favorite, but he's in the top three right now for sure. I would say like Alexi Shved is up there for sure. You know, Luka Doncic is right there. Nando DiColo is right there. But like, you know, these are guys that have played in the NBA and been successful and are now like 27 years old and could easily come back to the NBA if they wanted to try and get a second chance. It's just totally remarkable to me how he affects the game every single time he steps on the basketball floor. I'm so excited to see what he can do with the dramatically different circumstances of being in the NBA. And I think the transition, just depending on what kind of surrounding talent he gets in the NBA, it could actually help him thrive. You talked about it from three, like just depending on how he fits in, it's going to be so fun. But he's, Doncic is such an intuitive player that I think he's going to make whatever situation he gets into work for, work for him and work for the team. It's going to be a blast. And one of my favorite parts about this draft, and this is very different depending on the year, is it doesn't feel to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, of course, that a lot of the comparisons in the high end of this draft, this of course changes later on, are really apples to apples. It's players with meaningfully different strengths and weaknesses trying to A, evaluate if you think you, you can analyze that player differently than everybody else. It's not like, oh, these two combo forwards are pretty similar. I think this guy's better than that guy. And as an exercise, I think it's a lot more fun. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's positional overlap at the top. Uh, I would say there are a lot of big guys. Like you you look at DeAndre Ayton, Marvin Bagley, Jaron Jackson, Muhammad Bamba, even Wendell Carter. That's really five of the top ten being true centers. And I think that you could say – you know, maybe there's a little bit of overlap there skill wise. I mean, like Muhammad Bamba and Jaron Jackson uh, are fairly like with Jaron just being like a little bit more polished and Muhammad being a little bit more toolsy and upsidey because of the ridiculous length that he has. But yeah, I think that there are a lot of different skill sets there within those that uh, are going to allow teams to hopefully foster the development of their youngsters in a more tangible way or in the way that they see fit for their organization. Like I haven't gotten too, too deep into which player should fit which team. I'm probably going to wait until after the lottery to do that. But there are a lot of really interesting uh, kind of paradigms here that each team could go down if, you know, Phoenix decides – hey, what we really need is a big man who can knock down shots because a couple of our later picks, we want to take our point guard of the future and we want to have the rest of our draft board open to us in terms of shooting ability, non-shooting ability, etc. Like, there's just going to be a lot of options here for teams in a really fun way. Yeah, the, the way the lottery shakes out is going to, to swing a lot of this stuff at the top and, and also just what each team's individual preferences are. And, and I think kind of there are two other questions I kind of want to ask you before this ended. And one of them was, because you've seen these guys in a lot of different circumstances, is who do you think top draft, middle draft, bottom draft can use the combine to really help themselves? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I'm getting you in the frame of mind you're going to be in in a month a little bit early. No, I like it. If Dante DiVincenzo comes out, I think that he could really use the pre-draft process in general to help himself. 
Uh, he's like kind of one of those fearless guys who I think won't really have any, you know, any fear of going up against another player. Javon Carter, I think, is in that same boat where he's going to want to go against opposing point guards every single day in workouts. It's going to be amazing. You're going to hear so many stories about Javon Carter uh, just making like a younger point guard look terrible in pre-draft workouts, and I'm really excited for that. I think Zaire Smith could really help himself uh, once we actually get his measurements and like get his athleticism pinned down. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other guys here. I mean, like Shea Alexander, I think we need to learn a little bit more about. P.J. Washington declared for the draft already. I would imagine he gets a combine invite. If he puts up anywhere near what he did at the Kentucky combine this year, which was 6'7 height, 7'3 wingspan, 43-inch vertical leap, that's going to be a problem for Kentucky fans that want him to come back because he uh, obviously is a player that – the NBA is looking for right now is kind of like a four or five who can uh, allow you to play big or small. Yeah. And this is just off the cuff, but if Robert Covington, sorry, not Robert Covington, other Robert, Robert Williams, if, if his physical yeah. profile comes out the way that it might, that could really kind of lead to a boost, especially because I thought he looked pretty good at the NCAA tournament as well. Yeah. With him, it's all, it's all consistency in terms of playing hard. Uh, he even admits that himself. He says he takes plays off. He says sometimes he needs his teammates to get him reengaged. That's something that NBA teams are really going to have to focus in on and hone in on if they have the kind of culture to where they can, you know, get the most out of Robert Williams. I think that there are plenty of organizations that could do that, but he's a real swing guy in this draft and his measurements are uh, obviously going to be off the charts once they come through. You know, Mitchell Robinson, uh, people have forgotten about Mitchell Robinson, but he's going to be in this draft. 6'11 with like a 7'4 wingspan is going to jump out of the gym. He, he's going to be someone that I think can potentially really help himself in the pre-draft process. I'm trying to like kind of run through like the later portion of the draft right now. Melvin Frazier. I'll, I'll give you that name. Melvin Frazier out of Tulane. From what I know, right around 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, with like a 7'2", wingspan. Gonna jump like 40-plus inches. Gonna be a real, like, combine warrior. Uh, and if he does that, I think he has a shot to go in the first round as a wing who can hopefully prove himself as a consistent shot maker. And the last question I'm gonna ask you is difficult as well. It Something that I people have asked me about, and I just say I have no idea, is what college coaches make sense to make the jump. And so, I mean, there have been some real success stories recently. Brad Stevens is probably the shining example, but even Hoiberg, I think, is really finding himself with the Bulls. Are there any college coaches that you see, either high profile or not, that just you think could would do a good job making the jump? Yeah, I think there are two. Uh, you know, Jay Wright gets asked about it every year. Uh, there were rumors last time the Phoenix job opened that uh, Ryan McDonough really was interested in him. It wouldn't be a surprise if they try and go down that road again. I would imagine it would probably take something like six to seven million dollars a year to pry Jay from Villanova. Honestly, he might be worth it. He's really good. He's an unbelievable coach. He's an unbelievable culture creator, and he is really, really good at developing young players. I would be a fan of him uh, coming through to the NBA, and obviously, as we all saw in the title game, his system, I think, would work really, really well uh, in the NBA. He knows how to run switchy defenses. He knows uh, the importance of spreading the floor. He has all of the modern eccentricities of the game now down pat. 
I think Tony Bennett would be really good. I know that people will look at the pack line defense and say that it probably can't work in the NBA because the gaps that have to be created to kind of form the pack line across the front uh, foul line, probably they're just too wide, they're too big, and they create too many uh, open three-point looks for shooters who can knock down shots. I don't think he needs to run the pack line to be successful. He just has the right demeanor. He has uh, an incredible basketball mind. He's someone that I think would be really, really good at getting the most out of the young players on a roster. And that's ultimately the deal, right? Like a lot of these coaches are younger uh, or going to younger rosters, right? The last guy I would point to, I, I do think Bill Self would do a pretty good job. I know that we always shit on Bill Self for the way that he is incapable of getting the most out of, you know, elite level wing players or elite level guards in the college game because he's so predisposed to post play. But over the last couple of years, he's really kind of sold out on spacing the floor and making sure that he can, you know, have room for his guards to operate. Additionally, he's one of, if not the best coaches in college basketball in creating after time outsets and creating, uh, you know, baseline out of bounds plays, just little things like that. Uh, his mind for the game is just absolutely top notch in a way that I think he often does not get credit for developmentally. I don't know if you necessarily necessarily want to put him in that kind of situation but you know if you're Detroit and you think that you should be competing right now for an NCAA tournament berth or an, an NBA playoff berth maybe uh, that's the competition that NBA players compete in I think Bill Self is an interesting idea just from the perspective of the guy can really coach his ass off X's and O's wise and he's now 30 and 6 in situations where he's had uh, a long layoff in NCAA tournament games, so like the four- to five-day layoff before first-round games, Sweet 16 games, and Final Four games, kind of goes to show how good he is at game planning for the opposition whenever that arises. That's interesting. I, I will echo, I haven't watched nearly as much of Nova as you have, but when I watch them play, it just looks closer to an NBA team than just about every other college that's out there, and that's always a good sign for making the transition. Also, in certain years, the players he coaches are about the same age as the players he would coach in the NBA, so that's also good. <laughs> He's really good about that. He's really good at uh, you know getting guys to stick around. They've, I, I think that like everyone on their in their starting lineup, except for Jalen Brunson, redshirted. Uh, like every all five of their five of their top six players, I think redshirted. So uh, he's re- very very good at fostering a culture of development and fostering a culture of guys enjoying being there enough to where they want to stick around. Is there anything else you feel like since this will be the one that comes that we do after the NCAA tournament? Any other stories that that you think are a part of this that might be fa- have fallen by the wayside by the next time we talk? Huh, that's a really good question. You know, like Lonnie Walker is interesting to me. He is six foot four, six ten wingspan, really good at attacking closeouts, spot up shooter, would seem to fit the NBA uh in a really strong way. I think he could be a real riser throughout the NBA draft process before we get to that. Kevin Knox is still deciding. Uh, I guess we shouldn't say that because this is going to come out after he'll have already made his decision. Oh, what I was gonna mention this. What about what are you feeling about Daniel Gafford? Oh, that's a really good point. I think he made a bad call. To I be agree. Honest. He's going to be returning to an Arkansas situation that loses its top three guards uh, in Jalen Barford, Daryl Macon, and Anton Beard. Uh, there's not really going to be a consistent player there to get him the ball in the post. 
I know that he's considered by people around that program to be a sponge. He's someone who can really improve every time they see him. He's doing something different and doing something better. Same time, I, I don't know. Uh, I think that it's a real risk to return to a situation where you're probably not going to be projected for an NCAA tournament berth, probably not going to be projected to be uh, on the radar of many NBA scouts, trips throughout the Midwest and uh, South. It, it's just a risky spot. If I was him, I would have been happy to go somewhere in the 12 to 20 range, as I think he would have. I apologize that I might have short-tracked you. I'm trying to think of if there's anything else off the top well, of my head. I think that one might be the Darius Basley deal. Uh, yeah. That just happened. I think that's also an incredible mistake, uh, to be frank. Like he's, he talked in his Players' Tribune thing earlier this week. Uh, I guess like it would have been last week by the time this will come out uh, about – how, you know, I'm going to make $26,000 next year and my family and I, like, we, we really need that money. I understand that, but, you know, this, that's short-sighted to me. You, you really need to, if you're a player who's in the top 10 of your recruiting class, you need to focus on the long term, not the short term here. You, you need to really think about how your development will be affected by going to the G League. The G League, like, I mean, I think it's great that it is growing and being nurtured more and more as a developmental league, but we're not to the point where it is a full developmental league yet. This is a league more about survival. This is a league more about just being the last man standing almost so you can get that call up to the NBA. Uh, most G League teams, from what I know, don't really have like a weight development program or a program that like fosters your physical development. These are all guys that for the most part are 23 to 27 years old, like that they're physically capable already. Or the opportunity cost that he's passing up on in going to Syracuse is far greater than the $26,000 in terms of development that he'll be getting in the G League. Like Syracuse's weight facilities will be better. Their uh, practice courts will be better. Their training staff will be better. Everything about what Syracuse is going to do for you is going to be more prone toward fostering Darius Basley's development than the G League would be. And now he's putting himself in a risky situation, too, where a G League team is not necessarily going to be all that enthused about developing him. Like, what do they care about Darius Basley? They have a 1 in 30 chance of drafting him come draft night. They're not going to put in all of these resources and all of this time to him. And he's a player at six foot eight with like 190 pounds on him who really needs physical development. He really needs to continue to hone in that jump shot. He needs to, you know, really get to the point where he has a lot of differentiation in terms of his dribble as a point forward. Like they're, this is an incredibly risky decision in a way that I don't think it really had to be. Yeah, it's, it is it is a real challenge for selfish reasons. I'm very intrigued just to see a player with that sort of sure. talent go into it. But from his perspective, you're right about all the other, the other benefits that are there. And I'm assuming, I haven't read the Tribune piece, that there's an element of it that he didn't want to go overseas because certainly he could have made a ton more overseas than he will at, in the G League unless, and this is this would be the really nice bridge should it happen, unless there can be a, like a shoe company or something that can facilitate it because he's, as, as I understand it, he's allowed to take that kind of money and that might be the way to make this work. Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm sure that... 
whoever I'm sure that like he might sign a sponsorship deal, but like he's also not a million dollar like sponsorship kid. You know what I mean? Like it's not like he's going to be getting a crazy amount of money to go to the G League and like rep Nike gear in the G League. You know what I mean? Yeah, like maybe a team signs him or maybe a, a shoe company signs him to uh, get him long term and hopefully uh, create the goodwill there that, you know, being with a player early on can create. But it's not going to be like crazy amount of money. Uh, he's just not worth that kind of money as a prospect, to be frank. Yeah, that's certainly fair. Anything else you feel like we should discuss? I think it's about all I've really got now, Danny. That's uh, I think we've been pretty extensive. Always good to do. Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course, Danny. Anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read him at The Athletic. You can listen to his Game Theory podcast. And you can follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Very talented writer. His draft boards have been... Such a valuable resource for me and talking with him, obviously, such a valuable resource for me. So it's been a great run. The next podcast, you know, coming up near term, it's going to be the playoffs. I'm super excited to see how the regular season plays out these last couple days to actually get the matchups. A lot of the initial analysis will actually be on Dunked On, the podcast I do with Nate Duncan, because that's daily, so we really get into that. And I always see Real GM Radio as a weekly, more broad scope complement to those sorts of ideas. And have a really cool concept of what I want to do for the next episode. Not sure. I can't be completely sure that it will be executed, but that is the plan for right now. And you can look forward to that. The way that you can get that right when it comes in is you can subscribe, download every episode. Real Jam Radio does not come out on a specific day of the week, so you don't know to look for it. If you subscribe, it'll just pop in when it's ready. And leaving a rating, leaving a review is absolutely important as well. It's great if it's Apple, if it's iTunes, because they're still the definitive part of it. And spreading it by word of mouth or by leaving a review, that tells other people about the show. And we're always growing. We're always trying to adapt. And... I really do enjoy that part of it and people exploring it. And and part of Real Jam Radio is also that I try to make these more evergreen than most podcasts, at least in segments, depends really on how it goes. And so you could go back, you can listen to things and even in the first 10 episodes we did, and there will be elements of it that, that really do hold up. So I'm proud of that. It's something that I feel is important for the show with the weekly format. So I hope you enjoy that as well. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the single best way to do it. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I might not be able to respond because I am super busy, but I will read it because I care a lot about making the show better. And then the single biggest thing you can do with this show or really any other show to help it stay on the air, to help maximize it, is to check out our sponsors. For this episode, that is Hims. Awesome, so convenient solutions for hair care, for ED, should that be important to you. They have skincare stuff as well. And what it's a URL in this one. You go to forhims, F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash real, R-E-A-L. And you get a you can get a $5 trial month, which is fantastic. And then TrueCar, great place to buy new and used cars. You can also check out the Attack Every Day podcast, which is done by the Harbaugh's. Jim Harbaugh used to be my 49ers coach. So interesting to get those sort of insights frequently from him and his family. And you can also check my workout, a lot of other places, podcasting, 
mostly here in Dunked On. Nate and I are going to do the Twitter NBA show with a lot of regularity in the playoffs. And also my writing, The Athletic, has most of my salary cap stuff. And then Real Jam Radio, CBA Encyclopedia, whatever else I want to write. It's so great to have them as a resource. And also you can listen to me. I haven't really talked about this much publicly, but I'm going to have a short stint on Shaq's podcast. I think it's called The Big Podcast with Shaq. I'm going to be doing, we're talking about the playoffs and I believe that's coming out Wednesday, so you can look forward to that as well. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.